there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, my greatest, most favoriteest book ever. I cannot recommend it highly enough, and you can download the ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. If you like me, you like the show, you like the blog, check out the book, make sure I can write. If you wanna do something real nice for me, and why not, I've given you this free show, why not download the book, read it, and write a review? That would really help me out tremendously and get you set up for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Uh, that's gonna be coming out here in May. I just got, I've uh, been getting back reactions from my early beta readers, uh, but I just got the uh, reaction from uh, Banneker Bones, a premier fan, uh, as a boy who was, I believe, about 10 the when he read the first one. Uh, and he's been bugging me for four years to please write a sequel, please write a sequel. He sent me photos on um, uh, book character day to school. He dressed up as Banneker. Uh, he's been chomping at the bit, so I made sure and, and to get him an advanced copy so I could, if there was anything that needed to be changed, I knew he'd find it. Uh, and he found one, one little uh, issue that bugged him. I had called something a semester project instead of a school project, but the story takes place in October. So no problem. We made that change. But he read it in three hours. Banneker Bones and the Alligator People has taken me almost, almost two full years to, to write. I've been doing some other stuff, but almost two years to write and produce and make it ready for him. And three hours later, uh, he's not as excited about it. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write horror novels, including All Together Now, a zombie story, and All Right Now, a zombie story. You hear me talk about these every week. If you like The Walking Dead, you like your zombies. Uh, slow, creepy, and very violent, but you wish there were more teenagers. All Together Now, a zombie story. That's the book for you. Uh, and then, of course, I've written The Book of David, a five-volume horror novel. Uh, this book is crazy. Um, there's one thing I think about maybe stop talking about on the show so much as the book of David because this book is just madness. Uh, it is an atheist buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions. You can get chapter one of the book of David uh, downloaded for free as an ebook whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, and the book graduates in craziness and offensiveness. So if you make it through chapter one, prepare for chapter two to be even nuttier, chapter three to be nuttier than that. By the time we get to chapter five, well, it's your own fault. You should have stopped reading four chapters ago. Chapter five is really crazy. That's the book of David. Uh, coming up here on the Middle Grade Ninja uh, podcast YouTube show uh, on Monday, we are going to have editor Allison Weiss. That is going to be an excellent episode. Uh, Allison has edited. She was an editorial director with Edgemont. She's worked with, um, no, I've forgotten, uh, Skypony. She's worked with Skypony, and I also believe she's worked with Random House a bit. She's now doing some freelance editing on the side. So she is going to come on here. She's going to tell us how they do it uh, in the big houses. She's also, we're going to probably get really nerdy and talk about grammar and sentence structure, which I get very excited about. So that's going to be a wonderful episode on Monday. Uh, later, after the holiday, We'll be talking with literary agent Elena Roth Parker. Uh, coming into May, we're going to talk with authors Jessica Lawson, Daniel Jose Older, uh, literary agent John Rudolph, and of course, author Maurice Broadus. We'll be talking about Maurice's new book, The Usual Suspects, but that's not why I'm bringing him up now. I'm talking about Maurice because today's episode is sponsored by MoCon. MoCon is coming to Indianapolis May 3rd through May 5th. 
It is a absolutely my favorite uh, writers conference that I attend. Uh, I will be there. Maurice will be there. A whole bunch of fine literary agents and editors are coming out. A lot of horror writers are going to be there. It's seventy-five bucks for the whole weekend, and that includes food. So if you're anywhere in the Midwest, you cannot beat a deal like that. Uh, head to mauricerodis.com and sign up for MoCon. Uh, as always. Find out more information about the show and about me at middlegradeninja.com, where you can also read an interview with today's guest, literary agent Holly Root. Holly, I'm so excited to have you with us. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for clearing out the time and your no doubt very, very busy schedule to be here. Uh, please give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your career and, and, and uh, where you started versus where you're at today. Sure. So uh, I'm a literary agent. I also own my own agency, Root Literary. Um, started that two years ago. So I started out, um, I'm a Southerner, and I started out in editorial working in Christian publishing in Nashville, and then moved to New York and switched teams, went over to the agency side, um, and worked my way up sort of on the very classic apprentice model um being somebody's assistant learning the learning the the job on the job um and then started representing my own list of authors about uh oh 12 13 years ago something like that um and i've been doing this ever since time flies when you're having a great time yeah it's weird to realize like oh i've been doing this 15 years cool <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 gone well for you i was uh, astounded in, in reading your bio that you had uh, you're a you're a midwestern uh, girl like me uh, except boy uh and you had come from nashville and you and your husband moved to new york not knowing anybody and just broke your way in is that right yeah it's uh i like to call it the turnip truck route where you are too dumb to know where you're not wanted um and honestly, the there was a person in HR at William Morris, which was my first job in New York, um, who was from Tennessee. And I honestly think if she had not been a Tennessean, I don't know that we would be sitting here chatting today, or at least my path would have looked really different. Well, I think you would have probably ended up here one way or the other. Maybe not on the <laughs> not on the show, but certainly with your own agency. Some people have just got that drive, and that's something I'm going to want to ask you about today. Uh, it's because you have flourished uh, and amongst I, I don't know how many, how wide the candidate of people that come through that want to do what you do, uh, and you made it, you're doing it. You've got your own agency, you're in charge, and you've worked with many successful uh, clients. Let's start there. What are some of the clients that you've worked with? Well, I brought a stack of books to uh, show off. I mostly focused on my middle grade client list. Um, so I will, I'll just run down them for those of us who are listening on the podcast. Uh, Nancy J. Cavanaugh, um, Allison Cherry, Jen Malone. Um, I grabbed a couple of my colleagues' books as well. So I'll skip over those while I'm talking about my own clients. Um, India Hill Brown, Greg Van Eekout, Dennis Markell, Alan Gratz, Jen Cervantes, JC Cervantes. Um, and oh, that's another Greg. There you go. So just a few little highlights. Oh, and I didn't grab uh, a Victoria Schwab, but she also, also is part of the team. <laughs> Victoria Schwab. Hmm. Has she written anything we might have heard I of? I don't know if you, yeah, it's just a little, just a few releases here and there. <laughs> just an obscure, unknown author, Victoria Schwab. Yes. That's tremendous. Obviously, implicit is that everybody who, who comes to you and says, be my agent, Hollyroot, will now can look forward to being as successful as Victoria Schwab, I assume. Yeah, that's, that's the only track. 
Yeah. <laughs> makes sense to me. You just have so, to be willing to wait the uh, the nine, ten years that she's been plugging away at it, you know? So it's uh, an investment of time for sure. <laughs> well, outside of uh, Ms. Schwab, you've worked with a, a number of expert authors and something I'm just obsessed with finding out is in working with so many of these highly successful, highly motivated authors, are there qualities you've noticed about them that you could see early on that have distinguished them from other authors you've worked with? Um, I mean, I think each author is their own sort of magic sauce. Um, I don't know that there's one specific thing that makes for somebody who's going to break out. Um, I mean, I have a lot of overnight successes years in the making on my list. Um, people who, you know, the craft was there and then you just needed that exact book that hit because so much of making something a success is outside of your individual control. All you can do is show up and write the amazing book. And then where I and the publishing team can come alongside is to build that audience. But it, you know, we hear a lot about the ones that pop out of nowhere, but I think the much more common track is for people to build and build and build and build and build over a series of years. And then they have a book that, takes off at a level that, you know, I call them dumb uncle books, like your uncle who doesn't care about publishing, who's like, ah, oh, you do books, maybe you should get, uh, you should get Jim Patterson to, to read your books. And you're like, cool, I'll just go, I'll call Jimmy. And let me, you know, let me know how it goes. Um, so I, I, that level of notoriety where, you know, the Twilights, the Hunger Games, where someone who's not paying any attention to book publishing at all would still go, oh, I've heard of that. Um, so that often is something that's outside the author's control. But what the authors who get to that point have is a commitment to continuing to get better with every single book that they do. And also, I think, a self-awareness to figure out what it is about their work that people are responding to and to continue to strengthen the things that people love um, without doing a disservice to the stories that they want to tell. That makes sense to me. And I want to get this exact wording right, because um, that just brings me right to my question that, uh, oh, the agency, one of your, I, I don't know if it's a mission statement, but it's certainly uh, listed boldly on your website, uh, that you want to empower authors to define and pursue their own unique path to success. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean and how do you go about them? Well, I mean, I think there's, it's so easy to look around and compare, especially now with social media, it's you're seeing everybody's highlights, um, and not the behind the scenes. And so I think that's really just something that we want to keep our authors really focused on is running their own race, because you can't ever publish a book the same way twice. You know, obviously, the more successful books we have, the more we're able to bring to bear on a conversation about publicity and marketing, and the more that we're able to say, you know, this worked here, like, what's the version of that for this situation and author? Um, so obviously, we're really invested in being um, involved partners in that and bringing a lot of resources to the table. But you just can't do, it's not one size fits all. If it were, then every book would be a huge bestseller because nobody wants to have a book that doesn't work, right? So um, we are really are focused on trying to get people to focus on their own individual strengths and weaknesses and to really double down on what makes them special and unique so that they're not trying to constantly chase somebody else's success. They're trying to do what's right for them and also to figure out what success looks like for them. Because for some people, you know, that's having a book a year every year. For some people, it's doing this one magnum opus. Um, we tend to work more with people who are sort of career 
authors who are going to do a long list of books. Um, but it can look really different from person to person. And there, I, I think we're sort of trying to push back against the idea that there's any one way to be successful versus a wide array of menu options that you can choose from um, and work toward and pursue. I've got so many questions about how you work with authors, how you uh, pick authors, and we're going to hopefully talk about all of them. Uh, but I'm um, obsessed to going back a little bit to your bio. I was struck that you had originally started off majoring in English and pre-med, which to me does not does not match at all. I, I, I don't know how you uh, work both the left and your right side of your brain so effectively at that point. I mean, I don't know when I, I good deep dive, by the way, that lasted a year, like a year. Um, I still am not ruling out that I would be a really good doctor. I'm just saying, if I could figure out a way to do it part time, I would. Um, I'm not really going to be a doctor. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> I had. I would have sent you a congratulatory email and you said, "Well, come in for an exam." I said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go to a full time doctor. <laughs> I mean, listen, straight to surgery. Let's be real. Um, it, <laughs> how to explain this? So. I definitely had a perception as a, a young person that like, if you were smart, you became like a doctor or a lawyer um, or a professor or like something that involved going to school for 50 years. Um, and then I got to college and realized that the combination of like organic chemistry and calculus was like gonna make college a lot of work versus just dropping that and being just an English major, which would involve having a lot of fun and also graduating in three and a half years, which I did. So I just didn't, decided to not be a doctor. Um, yeah, it was a funny, I, I think it's like the idea originally, I think I was a big obsessive on like Robin Cook and I was like, I'll be a doctor who writes books, which I don't actually want to be a writer at all. Like I, no part of me wants to do that. Um, so I don't know. It was just a funny, you shouldn't be bound by the decisions you make when you are <laughs> entering college, I guess is the takeaway there. But yeah, so no, no doctor, but I do still read a whole lot of medical nonfiction. So at what point did you figure out that, that writing wasn't the position for you, even though you did love books? Uh, I mean, probably sometime in college, um, you know, you take creative writing classes, you're doing papers, you're doing, you know, you're generating a lot of content. Um, and I think the more that I studied writing, the clearer it became to me that uh, the creation of story was not the part that interested me. Um, I didn't have that drive of like, what if I made up something brand new and told you all about it? Um, I was much more interested in sort of the assessing and the taking apart and the why does this work and what's what's exciting about it. And also, like, frankly, I'm a novelty seeker. Like, I, I, I'm not someone, this is how I figured out I was not meant to be an editor, too. Um, editors get better on subsequent rereads. I get dumber. Like, at, there's a point at which, like, if, I'm, if I've got a project that's taking a lot of development and I'm on my fourth read, I, I have to really be careful with myself that I'm not just asking for it to be different. Like not better, just different. <laughs> because I am, I'm, I, I, I can't stop swimming. I gotta, like, I gotta keep going. I gotta keep finding new things. I'm not a natural rereader. I don't reread for fun necessarily. Um, could probably count on one hand the number of books I've reread in my life. I want to take it in, enjoy it deeply in that moment, and then move on. Obviously, for work, you sometimes have to reread things more than I would on my own. Um, but my natural inclination is toward discovery and finding versus. Um, 
creation or uh, perfecting. Makes sense. And something I, I want to ask, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, very successful people, which I consider you to be. Um, this, there's this idea, I know I've heard it uh, preached a lot to creatives, certainly I hear it preached to comedians, uh, to actors and, and to authors. This idea of don't have a plan B, don't worry about your day job, 100% focus on your goal and, and, and take, all, uh, take the net away and make sure you're 100% committed. Is that a part of maybe what drove you when you, did, when you and your husband moved to, uh, to New York without knowing anyone? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super pragmatic. Like I don't want to starve. Um, and was in fact like very worried about that when we moved. Like I can remember talking because I left, you know, like a very traditional office job. And I remember talking to my colleagues who were, you know, I this was a woman who her kids were my age. And so she took pity on me <laughs> as I was like, we're gonna starve. It's New York. And she was like, mm, you'll be fine. Like you are a person with resources, like you will figure it out. Um, and we did, you know, my first job that when I started working in the mailroom at William Morris, they pay you, I think, I think it was like $400 a week. Um, and you know, and this was what year? This was 2004. 2003, 2004, something like that. Yeah, 2004. The rent would not have been drastically different? No, I, I mean, you know, so like when we, I was I was married, we were self-supporting. My husband's an actor. So, and he, things took off for him pretty quickly, but like, which was what enabled me to take later steps in my career. He stayed in a Broadway show longer because I was getting up and running as an agent. So, I mean, listen, that's like, I recognize the privilege inherent in like that sentence. Um, it's a very goofy track. Like I would never recommend to someone, you know, who should be the stable income that supports you while you get your agenting business off the ground, an actor. Um, <laughs> but we were really fortunate. He is very talented. It was the right time, right place, blah, blah, blah. But when we were getting started, um, you know, I, I, that $400 a week did not cover our expenses. And so I worked a weekend job at the New York Public Library. Like that's, I think that that is a real part of like the early agent experience until and unless we can figure out how to do it in another way. Um, like the money just isn't there <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I just went out and got other work like to fill in the gaps. Um, so I do think that there is a, that commitment is, and that willingness to just do whatever. Um, you know, my old, one of my early bosses and mentors was Jenny Bent. And she has a great saying of like, like, how do you, how do you become an agent? And she was like, you just do it until you don't have any other marketable skills, <laughs> which <I think> I've <laughs> reached that point. I'm far enough in now that I could definitely say, um, but you know, there is truth to that, that you just have to do it until you hit this tipping point. And I'm, I try now that I have, uh, people, colleagues that work with me, I try to be really transparent about what that looked like for me. So like opening up my commission spreadsheet so that they could see the point, the tipping point at which it went from being like, white knuckle, are you going to be okay in New York City to, oh, you're fine. Um, and it's about, I mean, I think it's like, it's between three and five years, really, that most agents, if you're doing a if you're doing it in a, a significant way, like that's the tipping point where you're like, oh, okay, this is a career I could, I could do this. Um, and so I've just tried to be really transparent with my team about what that looked like for me and how to, to 
like if you look at the kinds of projects that I sold early in my career, you know, you can't, you sort of can't afford to be precious. You can't afford to hyper specialize. And my cohort of agents, so I started at Waxman, um, which was my first job where I wasn't assisting anybody. I was just a full-time agent in 2007. Um, I don't know if you remember what happened in 2008, <laughs> but it was not a great time for the global economy. Um, I was a stockbroker at the time. I have very vivid memories of 2008. Yeah. You remember, it was cool. Um, like they literally, HarperCollins closed Collins. Like there's Harper and Collins and Collins went away one day. I mean, just massive layoffs, huge disruption in the industry. Um, and I had been agenting for full-time, nothing else for a year. So that was like, my cohort is skinnier than other years of like people getting into the business because a lot of people just straight up couldn't afford to stay in. Um, but those of us who did, I think, are a little extra scrappy um, because you just had to be like you had to be really ambitious and, you know, and also like catch the right breaks. Like I was lucky that that corresponded with the rise in YA and that was a category that I understood and knew how to sell and was um, had a sensibility for, you know, not everybody's sensibilities are the same. And also not everybody is willing to work outside of their sensibilities. Like I am I, I grew up buying books at Walmart. Like I grew up going to the library. Like my ethos is middle America in a way that a majority of people in New York's is not just because they didn't grow up there. It's not something they're familiar with. So my sensibility has always been more tilted toward middle America mass merch channels than some, like I was never going to make a go of it in literary fiction. <laughs> like there were, there were plenty of people who wanted to do that. And frankly, like I looked around at the business and thought I like, I, I can't afford to not to be precious and to, to hold out for the great American novel. Like I got to do stuff that people enjoy reading that they will, that they will want to buy. That's like, that's something I get, or this is not going to be, a viable thing for me because yeah we were not we were not we were married we were adults our parents were like you're married you're adults <laughs> like good luck and they love us and they were supportive so it's not like you know sorry mom and dad i'm not blaming you for anything but we were not in a position where uh the level of parental financial involvement that some of my colleagues were experiencing was not there for me um for good or for ill there's pros and cons to all of that i don't begrudge anybody that but it was not my path so for me i did come in and have to really think with a, I, I did not have the privilege of being a like head in the clouds. Like, I just want to make art. I was like, I'm, I'm here to sell books. And that is the plan. What can we sell? That's perfect. Now, do you feel that your uh, Midwest sensibilities of having read literally, I mean, you go to Walmart, there's two shelves of books. <laughs> That's the books you have available in some areas. Yeah. Has that um, allowed you to identify talent that maybe would have been missed if you came from the same mold as the, as the, folks that are uh, around you? Oh, yeah. But I mean, then you have to sell it to the people who don't get it. So like, that's the problem, right? Like, it's a series of gatekeepers um, that if you, you know, one of the books I worked on early in my career was the Southern novelist, and people just didn't get it. Like, they were not, they just didn't understand <laughs> what that voice was. Um, and I think I probably sent it to, you know, 35 people and then had one offer. And then it ended up being a national bestseller because people are out there. Like, this is the thing. Everything is subjective and you're playing within, you're playing within a conversation that is very insular. So if you have a book whose target reader is not represented within that circle, 
it is going to be harder to help people understand what it is and why and how. And now, you know, I'm in a different position. I can, I can say to people, like, I know what this is, um, you know, to back in the fall, um, the target has two has a, two book clubs. There's the diverse book club and the like monthly book club. And both of the picks in the month of November were my books. Like, this is a thing I understand how to do. Like, I know what this is. I get like, hi, hi, Target. You want to call me? I could be your book buyer. I hear that's a part-time job, like being a doctor. Um, but like, that's a, that's a thing I get. And so I can now, people know that about me. I've proven myself. It's, you know, it's not as hard. All, well, sometimes it's still hard, but it's not as hard for me to know that I will be able to have someone who gets what I'm putting down. Um in terms of positioning a book that maybe is a little bit more outside of the clear cut stream of the trend. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it has absolutely helped because it's, it's an area that I see that not everybody else does. And now that you're having these conversations, I have to imagine 15 years later, uh, Holly Root, who's the head of her own agency, worked with Victoria Schwab and a number of other successful authors and, and has that clout coming in. I'm assuming these are somewhat different conversations at this point in your career than they were originally. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, the people that I'm working with, you know, there's people I sold their first acquisition who are now editorial directors or publishers. So like, we've all come up together, you have this cohort of people who started around the same time you did, and you kind of all level up together. And yeah, like you have a shorthand. So that is true. I mean, listen, don't get me wrong, there's still plenty of like Willie Loman moments, even at the very top levels. <laughs> um, you know, there will be certain people who don't know who I am or care, and that's fine. Uh, I like to say it keeps you humble. Well, not anymore. Now they're, they're all listening and watching this podcast. That, oh, that, that's obviously. over. <laughs> this is From now on, smooth sailing. Superstar Holly Root. <laughs> well, let me. Uh, gosh, so many questions for you on the back of that. Let's start with uh, gatekeepers that you've got to. You've still got to get through. So if you've got a, a book demystify i'm going to ask you to demystify a lot of things for for the authors who are listening and desperately want to know how that how it gets done in the big time agency um but when you're talking about gatekeepers you've got to overcome from a book initially the the author has come to you has overcome that initial hurdle now you're representing them how many additional gatekeepers could you be looking at for any one project Forty-seven thousand. <laughs> 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 go learn surgery. It sounds easier. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, so, okay. So there's the, you have to, I, I like to think of it not as gatekeepers, but as points of persuasion, right? Doesn't that sound nicer? Isn't that like friendlier? Um, it's a little bit, it's not a problem. It's an opportunity for a solution. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. It's a chance to recruit new fans. Um, so you have to get the team on board at the publishing house. So that's the editor. It's, every house is a little bit different. So some people have like really um, like set acquisitions policies. So like they go to an editorial meeting followed by a publishing meeting and like it has to clear each of these hurdles before they are allowed to make an offer. Other places are more ad hoc. They can take something to colleagues and get buy-in and then just make an offer up to a certain point and you only have to get, you know, the higher ups to sign off once you once the money gets weird. Um, so every house is a little bit different on that front. But once you have a book acquired that, you know, people sometimes like when I was a young a young agent, I remember being like, oh, these like interminable acquisition processes. They're so terrible. But like even those can have their bright side, which is if you have a book go through that and the editor is approved to offer, everyone's already bought in. 
right? So like marketing, sales, publicity, like they've already, they've already been made aware of this book. They know about this book. They've said, yes, you should go buy that book. And so that is, you just have changed up the order of operations. Whereas if you have an editor who, you know, maybe they just had three other editors read it and everybody said, yeah, this is a good book. And then now they have to go talk to sales and marketing and inform them about this new property that they have. So, you know, there's no, you don't so really ever preventing that by stepping in and getting those people on board ahead of time, also making that editor's job easier. Did I, did I understand that part? Yeah, it's just, it's just a different, you know, you're never like, you don't get around it. You're never going to not have to do it. <laughs> you, you, It's just a question of like, when in the process it happens. Um, and then it's a continual process. So because oftentimes, when a book is acquired, you know, everybody's not going to read the whole thing, because it's, not edited yet. It's not the final book for a lot of those people. You know, it's not going to serve their ability to do their job to read an entire manuscript pre-edit, um, just because of the volume of things that they have to do. So maybe they've read some of it. Maybe they've heard the editor talk about it. Uh, it just depends on the house. So then, once the manuscript is in, you're going to have new rounds of reads from your sales team, from your marketing team, from you know all the different people who touch the book. And then those are not the only gatekeepers, because then we send out galleys to, for middle grade specifically, teachers and librarians, influencers within the community, um, scholastic book clubs and fairs, you know, all of these other constituencies, junior library guild, all of these other places that can really help make a book pop. Um, and at every stage, like they are being recruited into your books team. So you really never stop having to get people bought in on your books. You know, Barnes & Noble is going to take a look at the book and decide how many copies to order. Indie booksellers are going to decide. So you're always recruiting people to your book's cause. It never really stops. And you're involved in every stage of that process, or at least somebody from the agency? I mean, some of it we're not, some of it is outside of our reach. Um, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not micromanaging the sales calls, obviously. Um, you know, I'd say that in most cases we're in contact with and how intensely depends on where we're able to be helpful. Sometimes the best thing you can do is know when to get out of the way. Um, and other times you can really be helpful by stepping in. Um, so it's just a matter of sort of knowing the team, knowing the situation, reading, reading what you're getting from the publisher and knowing at what point and how best to reach in. You know, there's some some relationships, it's like, it's all relationships, right? So there's some editors where everything needs to run through them. There are other editors where, you know, I've had five authors at that house and like everyone there knows me. And so if I drop a quick note to a publicist, it's not the end of the world. Like no one's going to feel their toes are stepped on because it's a, it's, I'm not getting anyone in trouble. I'm just trying to save someone an email, you know? So it's all relationship based and it's all about knowing how to be helpful and advocate for my author um, and not be a detriment to the overall cause, um, that it can't ever be about me feeling important or me needing to like flex my, you know, whatever, I don't even power, what, blah. Um, it's just not about me. Like, it's never about me. It's about the book. It's about the author. It's about furthering their cause and how best to do that is where the nuance comes in, in my job. Obviously, you've worked with a lot of agents who are going to remain nameless for this next question of mine. But what are some behaviors you've seen other agents uh, doing that might work to the detriment of their authors at that at that point? Uh, I mean, this is such a tricky question because there, for everything that I think is like not serving the author, there is an author out there who's like, 
that's what I want my agent doing. Like, and who am I to say? I mean, I can say from the outside that I don't think that it necessarily worked, but like that's that's armchair quarterbacking. I mean, I think every this is a big part of we talk a lot here in the agency about like we we believe that people end up where they are meant to be and that you you just have to because otherwise you'd go crazy <laughs> thinking about like panicking about like, did I miss the book that would change my life? Um, and you just have to be like, no, no, like what is meant for me will find me. Um, and I do think that you vibrate with people, if I may be slightly California woo-woo on you. Um, oh, no, we're big fans of woo-woo on this show. We're going to talk about flying saucers before we're done. Continue. Oh, I can't wait for that. I have so many thoughts. Um, so I, I think that you attract people who vibrate on a similar frequency with you. So the people who are going to be my clients are going to generally like how I do things. And the people who are not my people would want an agent whose instincts are really different than mine. Um, there are different styles. Like I work for the author. I think there's a way to agent that is overly conciliatory and like too concerned with like never rocking the boat with the publisher. And you can't do your job well if you're not willing to have hard conversations. Um, but I think there's also a way of doing it that's super aggressive that like everything to me, everything can't be an 11 or like people just stop listening to you. <laughs> You're just like a yappy purse dog. That's always like, meh, 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 meh. <laughs> and I don't want to be a yappy purse dog. Like I, I want to be, I, I want to, if I say to someone like, this is a real problem, I want them to understand that that's not something that I say about every, you know, <laughs> we don't like the comma placement in the cover copy is not the same as like this cover will hurt the book. So I, I feel like for me, my general aesthetic is to, um, is to choose my battles in consultation with my author, working toward the things that really matter for them. And that my understanding of the industry suggests will matter ultimately for the book. Um, and to just sort of keep the advocacy of the author at the center. And I think there is a way to agent that is ultimately more about like your own status and standing than your client's wishes and outcomes. And I, it's important to me that I stay well clear of that line. That makes sense. Maybe the uh, best way to kind of demystify some of this is let's just go through uh, the process of, of author um, who queries you initially, all the way to author who becomes uh, Victoria Schwab and, and, and super successful. Uh, and then we'll talk about flying saucers. But let's start with uh, what's the best way for authors listening to this who think, oh my God, Holly Root sounds like the dream agent. I have to get her or someone on her team immediately. What's the best way for folks to, to reach out to you? And also how many queries are you typically receiving on a daily basis? Um, can I tell you that it is amazing that I do not know the answer to that question anymore? Um, we have an incredible member of our team who is the front line on the queries. Um, her name is Melanie. She's amazing. Uh, and we all work on we all work on the query inbox. Like we are all reading things, but Mel is really our um our our gold scryer. She finds she finds magic and has a really great sense of what each of us are looking for and kind of what we're interested in. So we have a general que query inbox that is you can send to just the agency and let us sort it out. You can target an agent. Um, but like if something comes in, you know, Taylor and Melanie and I are all physically here in the office and we have Molly O'Neill. Uh, Taylor Haggerty is the other agent here. Um, not that I've like just assuming everyone knows my entire girl gang. Um, I do. I'm going to brag. <laughs> Taylor followed me on Twitter about an hour ago. So, all right. Hey, hey, there you go. Um, <laughs> up in the world. 
Taylor is not the fondest of the Twitters. <laughs> She's always like, what is the internet? And I'm like, hmm. uh, so she, we are the three of us that are here. She's laughing at me right now. Uh, the three of us that are here obviously like work very closely. And then we have spent a lot of time and effort to try to make sure that our, our team works even when we're not physically proximate. So making sure that Molly is in the loop with us and that we know what's going on. So even if something comes in, um, our tastes do overlap. The Venn diagram of what we represent has some, some overlap. And so it's on us, not on authors, to know what that is and where those overlaps are. So if you send something to Taylor that's really better, a better fit for me um, or vice versa, we'll just handle it in-house <laughs> and it won't be a thing. We're not going to be like, well, if you'd queried Taylor, you'd have a, a request. But because you said Holly, it's a no. Like we're... That's dumb. Um, I also don't care if you like get my name wrong on a query. I don't care if you like tell me why you are like querying me. Like I assume you're querying me because like I sell books and you have a book you would like to be sold. Like you do not have to, sometimes people work themselves into knots like quoting me back at me, which first off just reminds me that sometimes I just say things. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm that, reminded of that all the time. <laughs> that, was, that was a take. Um, so you don't have to do that. We're not, we're not precious. We're grateful that people send, think of us for their work. We don't need to be like flattered. Um, if you're going to flatter anybody, flatter my clients. Like if you email me and you're like, I am the world's biggest Greg Van Eekout fan. Not only do I love that because I will fight you for that title, but it also tells me that you are responding to things that I responded to. So if you like a lot of the books that I've worked on, chances are we probably have some overlap, at least as readers, and possibly also with your work as a writer. So I like that, but you don't have to do it. It's extra, not, you know, don't don't fake it. Um, so that being the case, if somebody goes to send you a query or to your agency mm -hmm. at the moment, is it better just to leave it without a name on it and hope it, it finds the right, the right person? Either way, I mean, if you feel like sometimes, like you might just feel a stronger connection to somebody's persona, which is okay, or their list. Like if you, you know, two of the books that I grabbed here when I was pulling just some of our middle grade work um, were actually my colleague, Molly O'Neill's. So this is uh, Song for a Whale and The Tragical Tale of Birdie Bloom. And these are like great examples of Molly's taste, but they don't, they're like, it's not cuckoo birds that either of those could have come my way too. So that's why I feel like don't stress too much. Like they're perfect Molly books. I'm so glad that she represents them. They're amazing authors. Um, but like, don't stress too much about having to get it right or feel like, oh no, I blew my shot, you know? So yes, feel free to say person, but know that, you know, we will take care of it internally if there's, you know, and also you can't know from the outside, like who has more room at a given time. Like if I've got two things in development that I know are going to go out in the next month, it probably, I'm probably not going to be like really super actively signing. I mean, I'm not super actively signing at any point at this stage, just because of the size and shape of my client list um, and the amount of time that it's filling. But I also never want to say never, because what if the next thing I love is right around the corner? So I'm always open, but I'm always sort of picky. But the other guys here are overlapping in ways that I would say, try us rather than don't like never, never take yourself out of the running. Um, but don't you, for us, at least you don't have to worry about like, Oh, if I miss, if I misdirect it, I'm out of luck. 
That's a good deal. And then I notice you're asking for 10 pages of a manuscript as of this recording. Mm -hmm. I know that submission guidelines change, but as of today, uh, April 18th, 2019, uh, you are requesting 10 pages of a manuscript. And I'm always curious because uh, mm -hmm. my, my response to that is always, well, if I could have told this story in 10 pages, I wouldn't have written an entire manuscript. So <laughs> what can you tell about a manuscript in 10 pages at, that might give you enough information to, re to accept or reject? So in 10 pages, I can tell if this is, if how confident the storytelling is, um, how strong the voice is, whether it sits too close to something I already have, um, and whether combined with the concept, I want to read more of it. It's the same process as when you go to a bookstore, you know, like you don't read the whole book in the bookstore before you decide if you want to buy it, right? Like you pick it up, you look at the back cover, you read what it's about, you crack it open, you read a couple pages and you're like, yeah, okay, I would read that. And it's the exact same process just at an earlier stage of the game. And, you know, we, the other thing for people to remember is that like, we are used to seeing manuscripts that have not yet been sold, not yet been edited. So I think sometimes people get like, freaked out or paranoid that like no one will be able to see what it could be but like it there's a magic there that we know how to spot even when it's not finished yet like i don't send me stuff that's not finished <laughs> i don't want to say that but like even when it's not yet in the form that it will be when it is published books change edits happen all of that is normal but we're and we're used to it so i as when you see if you, I wish that I could like download the experience of reading a hundred queries in a row to like every writer in the world because oh, I'd sign up tomorrow I'd love it it when like when you do it you're, it's astonishing how clear you get on like whether you want to read something or not and the hardest part for sure is the maybes like we call them the dreaded maybes um where you're like this person is good and I yet I don't want to read it and that's about us, not about the writer, but like, that's the worst. That's the, that, those are the hardest ones to sort of respond to or deal with because you can tell there's something there, but like, we're all, <laughs> none of us, like, you don't want to like pass on things that are going to be astonishing. <laughs> you know, you're, you're like, we're always, we really are like rooting for the authors. Um, we want the book to work. We want the book to be something we want to pursue. We want to have stuff to sell. We want to, you know, like I said, my novelty seeking nature, like I want to like find new things and get excited about new projects. So it, the hardest ones are the ones where you can tell that the person is good, but you just aren't like jumping up to be like, give me that entire manuscript. Those are the ones that are really, really hard. And the thing we keep coming back to when we talk about this internally, you know, we'll, um, is like that's an okay reason to pass it doesn't you're not passing a value judgment you're assessing whether something is a fit for you as an agent and whether you would do that author justice and if you're feeling hesitancy then the answer to that is no like you aren't that person's best advocate sometimes too it's a timing thing so we end up setting them aside like if you're just really busy and you like can't engage with anything or your brain is feeling a little addled because you've like done too, you've been multitasking too hard <laughs> that day. Um, so sometimes we'll set them aside and in a, with a fresher head, it you're like, oh yeah, no, now I'm in. I see what this person's doing. It was just a little, you know, it, it required more concentration and focus than I had at that moment. So we set them aside, but we try and sometimes fail 
not to let things sit too long because when they sit too long and we find that we've picked it up three times and just haven't gotten into it, that that's usually us. It's not the author. It's we're just not the right match. Well, 15 years, uh, surely uh, you've, you've had some projects you passed on that have you passed on Harry Potter, I heard, and you've, you've come to regret it ever since. Uh, thankfully, I was not in publishing when Harry Potter happened, so I do not have to have that uh, embarrassment on my on my record. Yeah, I mean, we've all we've passed on stuff that ended up being big. We've you know offered rep to people who ended up going with someone else, and like rightfully so because they made it a huge hit. You know, like that's just part of the thing. And honestly, um, I was in a meeting with a with a film person who asked me this question, like, "What have you passed on that you regret?" And I was like. This is going to sound unnecessarily woo-woo, but I honestly couldn't tell you. Like, I just, it's not, I remember, here's what I remember. I don't remember the ones I pass on that then go on to be successful because to me, those are successes. Like, that's a win. The author got what they needed. Like, there is no downside there. I don't feel any personal angst about that. Like, I, I just, I don't view it as a finite resource. Like, amazing books are renewable. So it doesn't, that doesn't bother me in the least. What I remember are the ones where like, I saw it, but we got it too late. Like where I I saw a query and was like, I want that. And then further up in the inbox was like, I've accepted an offer of representation. And we were like, no, we're like, we got behind our own, you know, turnaround time on queries. And like the author was totally in the right to like consider us a no because we hadn't gotten back. And like, those are the ones that I remember because you're like, oh man, if I just had 17 more hours in the day, (laughs) But, but you know, again, like things happen the way they're meant to be. It is okay. Like I, there is enough for us all. So I don't have to be grabby. So, okay. So you get 10 pages, you get the initial query. You're feeling pretty good about this. Is it an automatic send? Hey, go ahead and send me the full submission. What's the Mm -hmm. next step? Yeah, we would ask for the full at that point. I mean, you don't have to read the full. If you hit a point where you're like, Oh, this, this is not, working for me for a variety of reasons you can always you know tag out you can't you can't do this job and be afraid to quit a book because <laughs> you just would never get through everything you needed to do um and you know when we're when it's possible when it's helpful we'll tell people if there's feedback about that but a lot of times the feedback really boils down to like it didn't work for me which is not about the writer um again i think by the time that we're requesting things we're not requesting a ton of stuff that like we're the only people requesting. Um, these are, you know, these are people who are working at a publishable level. So most of the time people do end up, you know, either getting offers or we see the book go on to sell. So like we often will say like, you know, I can't wait to see where this lands. And we're not just like saying that, like we really do think it is publishable in a lot of cases. Um, it just isn't necessarily a fit for us for a variety of reasons having to do with, you know, list management or taste or whatever. Um, And sometimes we see stuff, the hardest ones are the ones where we see stuff where I'm like, this person's next book is going to be the one that sells, but somebody's going to sign this one. Those bug me because I know, like I know, but I'm not at a place where I can really, you know, early in my career, I could kind of take a runner on that and say like, yeah, that's what's going to happen, but like, come on board anyway, and let's, let's give it a go. Um, and now that's, I, I can't really from, 
it's not responsible of me to do that. So I have to really feel like something's going to go. So it needs to be a surprise to me that we didn't sell the first thing and we sold the second thing <laughs> instead of me knowing going in that like, that's how it's going to go. We see some of that too, where you're like, oh, this person is like one book away, but somebody's going to see it and take them on. And like, again, good for them. Like that will be the right match. But yeah, so, so we always ask for the full. Once you, if you get to the full manuscript and you like the manuscript, you're, you're on board or you can see where it would be, you know, another revision or two, it'll, it'll be in good shape uh, for submission. At what point in the process do you start evaluating the author and what kind of stuff are you looking at to make sure there's that woo-woo connection that this is going to be a good author to be in your list? Um, and, I mean, and also, uh, what are you looking for? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in, in an author or like in submissions? Ah, an author first, and then let's get back into submissions. Okay, so I, for me, here's how it usually goes. So, like, I I have to be reading and thinking about how I would sell it for me to pursue it, um, because again, there are a lot of books where you'll finish and you'll be like, "That's a book. I don't really have a great idea of like what I would do with it." Because again, so like the challenge for me now, like. The Molly always says that I am like an otter with a puzzle ball and the puzzle ball is publishing. So I just am <laughs> like, I want to get that. I want to get the fish. I want to get the fish. Um, I want to get that blurb from my next book. A book! Exclamation point. Holly Root. Right. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, so the puzzle ball that I'm interested in most often now is not just like, can I sell this? But does this add to the overall picture of what it is that is out there in the world. Like, is the, do I feel like this adds meaningfully to the overall conversation and the category and the industry? Like, is this filling a hole that I perceive in the market? And that's a really different question than like early in your career when you don't have as many clients and you kind of have more niches to fill. Right. So like, I don't like, I, I work with, um, Alan Gratz, who this is his most recent release, Grenade, but he also is the author of Refugee, which just celebrated a year on the New York Times for middle grade. Um, so like the likelihood of me taking on Alan, this book Grenade is um, set in the Pacific theater during World War II for middle graders. That is a tightrope walk. Like the likelihood that there would be another book in that same space that I would pursue is very slim just because I kind of have somebody who's like, I got Alan, like I'm not going to compete with Alan. So when you're earlier in your career, there are more places with less competition. Later on, what starts interesting me is like, what are the stories I don't have? Who do I, who can I, who can I work with who's doing things that I haven't seen before? I want to be surprised and delighted. And I also want to know totally 100% what the potential is. Um, on the adult side, I work with an author, Jasmine Guillory. Um, this is her upcoming book, but her most recent release was just the um, Reese's Book Club pick, the Hello Sunshine Book Club, um, which for women's fiction is a very big deal. And she's an author who, when I read her submission, I was actually on maternity leave when I offered representation to her. Um, and I read it and was like, I know exactly what to do with this. I see, I know what format you publish it in. I know what the cover looks like. Like I just knew what that was. And that zing is the thing that I have to have now. Like, I can't just be like, that's a good book. People would like that. I have to be like, here's what it is. Plan of attack, let's go. So that's a really different read. Um, and that's not, 
every agent is coming like you can't this is why I like worry about people getting fixated on specific agents because every agent is working in a in their own like mental space like that and you can't know where somebody is and like what they're seeking and where the holes are in their list so that's why I'm always like cast a wide net like you know, be selective, pick good agents, but like cast a wide net because you can't know that I'm sitting here thinking, you know what I don't have? Like a, just like an adventure romp for middle grade. Like you can't know what's in, what's in the background because a lot of it's not announced yet or hasn't come out yet. So I, I worry that people sometimes try to like do it from their side instead of just like trusting <laughs> in the process. And I get that because it's awful to be out of uh, control of like the entire situation, but so much of this industry is kismet. So I'm just hoping that the books come to me at the time when I see the gap and know what to do with them. So after I read something and I, I feel like I have this strong, clear sense of like what I add to the party, that I would be the person who could help get that book where it needs to go. Um, then I will sort of flip back through that first query and just kind of see how the person describes themselves, like what they're up to, you know, were they, were they a librarian? Were they, you know, just a person who is working a job and writes on the weekends because it gives them joy? Like all of those are perfectly great. Like, I don't really care what the answer is, but I'm curious in how you talk about it. Um, and then I'll usually do a little light stalking. I have some clients who are ungoogleable, and that's fine. Um, so I, I don't need everybody to be like an already established like social media juggernaut or anything. I mean, sometimes I feel like that could almost like be a downside rather than an upside. Um, okay, so it's never like, what an excellent book, but less than 5,000 Twitter followers. Eh? Put that in the fire. Next book. No, I, yeah, no. I mean, it's nice, like, because it, it helps me kind of get a sense of who the person is, but it's not, I, I don't think it's, it is not uh, determinative for me. Um, and then I think. Are there uh, clear red flags that would prevent you, even though you like the book and you have a good idea where you can market it? Is there something that could come along and say, oh, never mind? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but a lot of times, too, like, the, that will come up in the way that we've interacted. Like, we'll, like, you know, I, I was a, a lot of people's assistant before I was an agent on my own. And the most valuable thing that I took away from that was getting a read on people via like email communication. Um, so I have a fairly good sense for the kinds of people that I will work well with and the kinds of people that I won't. Um, and I think when you're on the phone, so like I always call to offer rep um, and I usually will talk with someone for a bit before I actually get around to that. And I have had, Again, like I feel like my picker's pretty good now. I can usually kind of just suss out from like even just the back and forth of like, will you send me that manuscript? <laughs> Which is, I know, like four emails, but I I swear. Um, I usually have a pretty good sense. Sometimes you will have a phone call and you're like, we are not each other's person. And you don't, I find that often, like, again, I just, I trust writers. I believe in writers' ability to be self-aware. And I think that if I'm feeling that, they are too. Like, it's a two-way communication street, right? So I find that generally speaking, you don't have to say, like, I am not offering representation for them to, like, know that you guys are not the right fit. Um, but that doesn't happen that often. Um Agents are also really chameleons and we kind of work with each client where they are and how they are. So it's not, it, it's like, less, I, like we're not getting married, <laughs> you know, like we need to speak each other's language. We need to be able to trust each other, but we're not forming an, you know, everlasting trough. <laughs> so I, I can work with a lot of kinds of people, I guess is the takeaway. Um, 
but yeah, so you do try to get a, a feel for somebody and kind of a sense of, you know, I, I would say like obvious like anger issues on the internet would be a red flag for me. Like if, you know, somebody's using their Twitter account only to like yell at like other, you know, civilians or like harass celebrities or whatever, like that's not great. Um, you know, strong opinions are fine. People are allowed to have opinions on the internet, but you know, meanness, like general meanness, um, being like obviously, you know, awful online is not great. <laughs> but again, this doesn't come up that much for me. Like I've not really ever loved a book and then gone online and been like, oh, that person marched in Charlottesville. Cool. You know, like that's not, <laughs> I, I hate to be like that, that those person, those people wouldn't write good books because maybe they would, but it just hasn't happened that way for me. So I, I don't, I can't really point to a specific case, but generally speaking, I find that like the people that whose manuscripts I respond to are like lovely human beings, whether or not they want to work with me is about personality, not like, you know, red flags. That's usually true. Although I always go to the example, I'm going to, I try not to author shame this one time. I will. Um, I love Ender's Game. Just adore oh, that novel. Yeah. And then I go online and I read Orson Scott Card and I go, oh no, you didn't read your own book. You yeah. don't understand the thematic concerns you established in your novel. How, yeah. how did you write this book? Where did isn't you steal that, it from? <laughs> isn't that wild when you're like, I, you wrote this thing that told me the opposite of what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. That's like, yeah. Uh, not my client. Rare, rare occasion. So, okay. <laughs> well, before we go on and start talking about uh, how you begin the submission process, what what, what sort of services you're going to offer uh, the offer. First, let me just ask you, how do you keep abreast of the market? How do you keep your, your finger on the pulse and, and keep in touch with what's going on so you know where to submit? Uh, so, I mean, there. so the nice thing about having an established client list is that there are like a lot of people with whom I am in like daily contact <laughs> because we have multiple authors together. Um, it, so it's very easy to kind of know what they're up to, but even still, you know, I, I go back to New York a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, and some of that is because there are meetings for my clients that I need to be at. And some of it is just sort of relationship maintenance and keeping up with people. Um, but I also, I'm a huge phone person. So I will just call people. Sometimes this is, this is, harder with younger editors who I find often are like not as eager to pick up the phone because they're in like open plan offices. <laughs> like this is like an actual physical space problem um, where like you don't want to have a like personal laughy jokey conversation in like an open plan office. So sometimes I'm like, okay, well, let's book a phone room so we can be people instead of you having to be like, and then I was thinking, you know, um, but I love the phone. I do think it is very valuable as a tool. Um, and then in person, it, just getting to sit down over lunch or coffee or whatever and chat about the sort of intangibles, like, you know, this person who's recently gotten super into K-dramas and it's made them realize that actually maybe they are okay with a little bit of romance in their fiction. Like maybe that would be fun to work on. Um, you know, just those little things that nobody would think to put on a wish list per se, um, but in conversation come up more naturally. So that kind of relationship building, um, is super important to how we do our job. Also, straight up reading. Like, I read a lot of books that aren't my clients, that aren't, um, you know, like, that are outside published books. And some of that is to remind myself that I do like to read because the danger of making something you love into your career is that you suck all the joy <laughs> out of it. And me, joyless, is not going to serve my clients well. I have to 
I have to keep plugged into the joy. So like I said, I read a lot of medical nonfiction. I read a lot of um, science books about marine mammals. You know, everybody's got their thing. It's That's my thing. I will serve the whales if ever they rise up and overthrow humanity. Just to be clear, I want to get on the record with that, that I will serve the whales. I will throw humanity over and serve the whales. Um, okay, well, potential <laughs> submitters, keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I... I also will read a ton of books from people that I would like to sell books to, which is arguably the best way to figure out what somebody's taste is, is to see what they loved and responded to. And I, you know, often when you're with editors over, you know, lunch or coffee, you'll talk through sort of like, yeah, I've got a stack of books in front of me now from my last trip. I was there a couple of weeks ago. I'm there next week. Um, and people will say, you know, oh, what I loved about this was dot, dot, dot. And then when you're reading it, you're like, oh, I see that. And also that helps me understand why this project I sent you last month didn't totally work for you. So it's just constantly a, um, you're just constantly assessing and adding to your understanding of, of the editors. And we, we try to pool information here and be smart about not getting siloed. Um, Cause a lot of places I've worked, you know, your contacts were your contacts and it wasn't really extended. There wasn't necessarily that information sharing unless you like went and specifically asked. So we've done some stuff on the back office side internally at the agency to try to make that kind of information sharing a little bit easier, just using tech and um, making that information more transparent internally within our team so that, you know, for those of us who aren't physically in New York every single day, although frankly, I find that I see people more regularly now that I'm not in New York because I actually like make plans versus the sort of this like generalized, like, oh, I'll see you sometime. <laughs> I would go like two years without seeing an editor I had books with. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we do try to information share too and make sure that we're kind of constantly up on what everybody's uh, on the hunt for and who's moved where and, you know, people taking new jobs or leaving the business or coming back and all of that. And you must be a voracious reader. How, how, how often are you reading every day? How many books do you read a year, would you say? So I, I mean, I don't track the work reads because it, I just don't, um, but I, I try, so my goal every year is 50 um, like outside books that have nothing to do with work that are just like books that don't necessarily inform anything. Um, and I, I pretty consistently hit that and then add to that, like the research reads and the client books, I think. I mean, I think, I can't remember exactly how many I have this year. I think it's like 35 books publishing this year. Um, and then, you know, people's next books, things that are submitting, submissions that come in. It's a lot. It's a lot of reading. Um, I'm a really fast, natural reader. Like I didn't like teach myself to speed read or anything. I'm just a fast, natural reader. And the more into something I am, the faster I read, um, which is also a helpful cue. Like if it's taking me a long time to get through something, there's usually something about that that I should pay attention to. Makes sense. So, okay, you've uh, you picked the author. Uh, you like their book. They like you. No, no red flags. Uh, everything is going well. So, what's the next step from there? How do you begin a submission plan? What's your plan of attack to get them where they need to be? So, I mean, I hate to be like this is a little different book to book, but it's a little different book to book. Um, and there's like a really different strategies for this. Like some agents really like to do really big submissions. Um, I tend to do smaller submissions on the idea that they're going to be more targeted. There are certain books where when you think about it, you're like, yeah, there's like 10 people who would love to have this book. Like that's, I can't possibly send it to less than that. And then there's other books where you're like, I'd rather go a little smaller and just really like, I think editors, I, I try to communicate to editors that I'm not 
blasting things to, you know, 26 houses every single time, if I'm sending, it's likely six to eight people. Um, and, you know, that's about me trying to match make. It's actually hardest with a client that I'm just brand new working with because I don't know them as well. So I tend to go out a little bit wider. Um, with my authors that I've been working with a long time, I usually know them so well that I can not only match make editors who will like their book, but also editors who will be good fits for them personally. Um, people whose styles and sensibilities will align. Um, I don't have a ton of authors who move. Like they usually, they move when they open a new line of business, but I, I'm very proud of the consistent bodies of work that my authors have, that all of their books have been with one publisher or, you know, and you can't always perfectly do that. People leave, relationships change. Like you can't always stay at one place forever. But in terms of preserving that revenue stream of the, like the royalty backend on a backlist that's earning, um, it can be a real strategic play to keep somebody in one place. So matchmaking well and creating a foundation where we can have like a good, long, healthy relationship run um, is important to me. So I tend to think about it from that angle. And then also about who's looking to buy, who needs something like this, what do other, like what people have on their list, you're trying to avoid in-house competition. So you kind of have to know, and some of it, you know, you can't know cause they haven't announced things or, um, you know, you aren't totally sure where something landed. You know, there was a project out that was kind of like this, but you're not sure where it landed. So you, you you can't perfectly manage it, but you're just kind of trying to look for the best opportunity for the book, not just to get the sale, but then also to publish well. Um, and so I will generally, while the author is off doing whatever revisions they're doing, um, which will usually do either a call or maybe an email, it just depends on what they need and how they prefer to work. Um, while they're off doing that, I will work on the submission list and letter and then come up with sort of the strategy for what we're going to do on that. I've sold books on exclusive where there's like one editor that I'm like, that's the thing. And I'll talk to my author about what that looks like. And if they feel the same way, then we'll do that. You know, I've gone out really wide. Like there, it is different every time. Um, so every book is like a slightly different play playbook, but it all involves, you know, targeting a, a list of editors, <laughs> creating sales materials, and then sending those uh, materials out. I still like to call in phone pitch. Um, I'm trying to teach myself to not have to do it every time because honestly, some people are just like, what are you doing? Like, just send me the book, you know, I want to see it. And I'm like, well, but like, hi, want to chat? <laughs> people are like, Go What's away. the advantage of doing a uh, phone pitch versus just an email? Uh, so I think that there is value in people hearing how excited you are about it. And also if there are like nuances, like if you are moving an author, it is easier to tell someone why you guys are looking to make a change over the phone versus an email because you can't control for tone. So like if you are sad about the fact that you are moving, like your editor left and you wanted to make a go of it, but it just isn't the right fit anymore. You know, if you had a rough time or you're looking for a change in the narrative, like all of those things are a little bit more easily explained over the phone than in email to me. Opinions vary on that. It's a stylistic thing, not a like quality marker. Okay. It's also like I'm, I, I've been doing this a while. <laughs> and so like back when I started, that was what my bosses did because you sent people manuscripts in print in boxes by messenger. So like you, like it's just, it's, it's also just how I was taught, you know, like, so that's why it feels more like what you do. But for people who came up in a different time, like I think there are editors and agents who are younger than me who are like, nah, you just send an email, like, what are you doing? Um, so it's just a style thing. 
So what's your average uh, workday look like then? Are you 40 hours and out or are you working all weekend long? What's, what's your average for you? So we talk a lot about this internally because agent burnout is like a very real thing. Um, and we, ha so the agency is two years old and I think it is fair and accurate to say that uh, Taylor, so Taylor Haggerty has been with me from day one. Like when we opened the door, she was there uh, and we burned ourselves to a crispy fried crisp <laughs> getting up and running. Um, and so I am trying to be very intentional about setting a culture where that is not the norm or the expectation. Um, and how you do that changes with where you are and what your demands, like what the demands on your time are. But I think you have to carve out time to do things that aren't work because the work will expand to fill like whatever container you give it. Right. And there's always something more you could be doing. There's always, you know, like, but you have to focus in on the things that actually make a difference. So when I look at like, I'm really good at triaging. Like if I look at my inbox and I'm like, yeah, okay, stuff with money attached for clients go and like you do a you do a pass and if there's money involved if there if you can make your client money by that email that is the first thing you do and then it's you know helping clients with urgent problems great here we go and then now it's the stuff that's important but maybe takes a little more thoughts so like you kind of have to you have to sort of set a priority for yourself because you can run yourself ragged and the same is true for authors actually and i think it's very easy for authors and agents to get into this like death spiral of just like busyness where you're not actually necessarily doing anything, but you're generating a lot of heat by like winding each other up. And so it, I, I am, I am working on myself. I have two small children too. So that helps. They are like natural boundaries, right? Cause if I don't go home, I don't see them. Um, and they like, I, I have like, that is a hard boundary. <laughs> so like they are non-negotiable for me. So that, build some containers around um, around the time. And I like I have pretty strict email boundaries. Like I don't, I don't, I don't like, I don't text with clients. I don't G chat with clients. Like I don't, I have like, I have probably more um, firm boundaries than a lot of agents do about that. But it's for me, it is about maintaining a certain amount of space to do the the thoughtful stuff that I can really add value rather than just constantly being in reactionary mode. Um, so like I don't email on weekends unless it's a really urgent thing. Um, I try to not check email at all, at least one of the two days. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's something we talk and think about a lot here, both for our authors and then also for ourselves. Well, even with your, when you're, you're vibing with, uh, with an author, uh, extremely well. I mean, this isn't, you're not looking for best friends so much as you're looking for their, your clients. You are the agent to go and perform for them. Am, am, am yeah. I that right? Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, a lot of, it's such an interesting thing because a lot of my authors I've been working with for a really long time and we are really close. Like we are very invested in each other as humans, but also, you know, you have to create space for your author to do what's right for them, even up to leaving you you know, and that's like a hard reality. But like, if somebody needs to leave me, I need that to be an option for them that doesn't then also mean that they are like nuking their entire friend group, you know, so I'm always wary, I, I always want to like, give space for people to have that boundary. Um, I don't have a lot of like former clients. So this is not something that like comes up all the time. But I want people to it is, again, the core of what we do is we represent clients. Like everything we do has to be in service of the client. 
And that doesn't always mean unfettered access 24-7, 100%. You have me anytime you want. It means that I have to always be working for your best interests. And so keeping that at the core and letting that guide like, okay, with that as the understanding, that's the riverbank. What kind of water do we want to like, what, what kind of water do we want to run through that? That makes sense. So, okay, contract time. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got an editor, you pitched it by phone. They were utterly charmed. They read the manuscript, they're in love. What kind of negotiations, what, what do you do to make sure you're getting the best deal for your, your clients? So, I mean, I, I can't and won't go into too much detail. <laughs> Don't share anything you'd be uncomfortable um, with. But, I mean, I think that having, having an agent who knows what is going on inside your contract is really important. Um, and I think that there are a lot of places that do not make understanding what's in the contract a very big deal for their agents, like they're very concerned with like the amount of the advance and the grant of rights and that's it. But there are so many little things inside a contract that can really impact the revenue stream that you see down the road, like escal escalators on royalties, especially in Kidlet where the royalties are non-standard, they're negotiable. So like in adult fiction, it doesn't matter. Like if you like won a contest and they gave you like their worst boilerplate contract, it would still have the same royalties as like my best, biggest New York Times bestselling author has for hardcover because they're standard. The whys and hows and wherefores of like why kid lit contracts are not this way are something I'm sort of constantly tapping on like a velociraptor checking to see if the fence is still lit. Um, <laughs> but like that stuff really matters. Um, high discount royalty rates, export rates, like this stuff is so boring. I once, one of my favorite editors had this, like, we had this terrible groove where every time he saw me, I was just like holding forth about something just deeply boring, like Canadian royalty rates. And I was like, I'm, I promise I'm fun. And he was like, I don't know, man, every time I see you, you're talking about Canada export, Ugh. like great party talk route. Um, we turned it around eventually. It was fine. But it like that stuff really matters. And it's so deeply nerdy. And you can't, every contract, you can't, always get improvements in every single contract on every single front, but knowing which things matter for the kind of book it is and the kind of deal it is and pushing for the best iteration you can get. Um, and they're always sort of constantly a conversation. So I, I wish that we could unilaterally change our boilerplates with the frequency that the publishers unilaterally change their boilerplates, um, but we can't. So anytime you get a new contract, you're constantly looking for, and we work with a contracts consultant too. So there's two sort of layers of vigilance on contracts um, at our at our shop. So every time you get a contract, you're sort of looking for like, what new delight awaits? Um, like lately it's been these morality clauses, which on the one hand you're like, yeah, like I don't know that I'm interested in like repping someone who, you know, goes on the record in favor of something awful. <laughs> like, so on the one hand, yeah. But on the other, my job is to stand up for my author. And so what does that look like in terms of pushing back on a morality clause? Like it, it's not really the publisher's business, what a person thinks, says, and does. And so we're constantly fighting those battles. Um, so yeah, the contract is a really, really big thing. And it's much bigger than just, you know, do you get world or world English? How much money are you paying us? And I, I think that there are, you know, I, I have clients who've been repped other places before. And it's always interesting to see, you know, different agencies sort of 
are focused on different things, you know, sometimes for the better, sometimes not, like just different priorities. So it's always interesting just to kind of talk through a contract with a client and clarify sort of like how and why we arrived at certain places. And also to give them the backstory on like, if there's a clause that like isn't great, but like that's as far as we could get it. And like, let's talk through what that means for us and how we're going to work around it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I have definitely... (laughs) not necessarily proud of this, but uh, I was once very, 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 very pregnant and literally like hiss screamed at someone about the Caribbean Commonwealth in a grant of rights. So (laughs) must have had very passionate feelings at the time. I think I like, if I recall correctly, it's been a minute. uh, I think I said, I look forward to seeing pictures of it in every bookstore in St. Bart and then like hung up dramatically. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure the person on the other end just began to drink. Oh, devastated. <laughs> I, like, we we talked later. It was fine, but it was definitely it can get it can get heated. It can get heated. That's good. I think it's good for authors to hear this side of you and to know uh, that under the uh, very pleasant, smiling, friendly Nashville uh, girl uh, who's who's gone on to become a, an agency superstar, there's a fierce determination that will work in your favor if you'll. I feel letter. So, okay, you uh, you you nail the contract. You get what you want. How how much involvement do you continue to have in that process versus going off and and, and working to negotiate a new contract for somebody else? Oh, I mean, that's when the work starts. Like you, I mean, selling it is in many ways the easy part, which is crazy because selling a book is not always easy. But the there's so many more variables as you move down the road. And again, this is where I talk about the idea of like success is going to look different for everybody. So you, you know, you can't just set these like outside arbitrary things because if your book is, has been P and L'd profit and lost, like projected by your publisher at a certain level and you surpass that, you may not ever, you know, hit a bestseller list, which is really about velocity, not just about number of copies sold. Like I have a lot of books that have sold a lot of copies and have never seen a bestseller list. So, you know, it, we, we celebrate the wins when that win serves us, but there are a lot of ways to be successful that don't have anything to do with any of that. Um, you can be a huge hit for a house. Like you can return a ton of money on their investment and we're in a great position to get you a better contract next time because your book outperformed expectations. So there are a million ways for that to go well. But having a book that does that might look really different than if I'm trying to make sure that, you know, uh, an announced half a million dollar marketing campaign, that that half a million is going to the places that really are going to be impactful versus the things that like will feel really good for us on an ego level, but like probably don't actually matter. So like that, those are two really different ways of agenting. Um, and it's important for us to be able to do both. And that again is about like not comparing clients and not letting clients, like sometimes clients will be like, well, it's not like I'm, you know, whoever. And I'm like, but you, but like, that's okay. <laughs> you, you're you and who knows what you are in three years, you know, like if what, if what we're doing now pays off in three years, there's going to be somebody sitting there going, well, I'm not that client and like that's that's what we want and it's not it is a long game like publishing is so slow and I feel like people think that their future in it is made or broken in like the first month of on sale and that just simply isn't true you just have to stay in and keep running and then it can get really interesting 
So, oh, so many questions for you, and I know we're going to run out of time, and I want to be respectful. Um, what? Um, well, let me ask you this: What uh, should an author be doing to market their own book? How involved should they be versus focusing on writing the next book? Well, okay, so I would, I would push on that a teeny bit. That oftentimes marketing on a book level is inaccessible to authors because it's about. So marketing is the stuff you pay for. So it's the it's the placement in stores. It's the like those kinds of things are not available. Like promo buys are often not available. There are some exceptions to that, like places like BookBub, where you could do an ebook um, like blast. Uh, some of the Goodreads stuff authors can do on their own. So like there are things that are accessible, but for a large part of the lift is going to be on the publisher publisher side. Um, the publicity piece of it authors can make a huge difference in like with just some sweat equity for things like if you have an event set up, um, making sure that you like beat the bushes and don't just rely on social media to turn people out is a thing that people skip a lot of the times because they feel like, oh, I don't want to like make people feel weird. And I'm like, make people feel weird. Like people will think, oh, like good for you. You've got it. And they won't understand that. Like you really want them to come unless you actually say like, I really want you to come and it's okay if they can't, you know, no big deal. But like, we've been encouraging people to really do direct outreach about their events, send people emails, you know, do an evite, like make it an event. Um, and that's an instance where a, an author's individual effort will absolutely return dividends because your connections and your network and mobilizing those can take an event that would have had four people and turn it into an event that has 40 people. Uh, and that pays dividends down the road, both for that bookstore having you back, for your publisher seeing that you're someone who can draw a crowd in an event. So, like, there are lots of ways that an individual author's strengths can be mobilized um, around and in support of what the publisher is doing. But there are certain things that are just inaccessible. Like, you can't control whether Barnes & Noble agrees to put your book on an end cap. Um, and so it's it's part of our job is about informing and educating about, like, what what you can control and what you can't and how your efforts can supplement what's going on on the publisher side. And also like if what's going on on the publisher side is a little anemic, that happens. It's also on us to like really take what you're doing and present it to the publisher because sometimes instead of just yelling, you know, you're not doing anything, you can get more out of them by saying, look at what we're doing. Can you support this author's efforts in X, Y, and Z ways? So there's there's always like a conversation. Again, like it's all about like continuing to find ways to, to come together and work together and use each other's strengths um, appropriately. Makes sense to me. Well, I've got about 20 more questions for you about uh, I, writing and publishing. We won't get to them all. Um, gotta, I have a little more time if you want to keep going. Well, before I forget, let's make sure we cover this one where the, 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 the audience will, 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 uh, will come after me with pitchforks. Holly Root, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you uh, believe in them? I have never seen a flying saucer. I do believe in them. However, I think that if there were... Um, advanced life forms able to travel here, they would come through, take one look and be like, nope, and head right back on up. <laughs> We're not ready. <laughs> they might That's come to, true. They might come talk to whales, but humans, nah, too destructive. Fair enough. Fair enough. We're making the right decision, aliens. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk... Um, 
uh, let's talk about authors just in general. What are the number one thing, or if you could recommend any author that's watching, listening, do one thing that's going to propel them towards success, what's the one thing you'd want those authors to do? Uh, I think I would recommend that everyone become a more critical reader. Um, like taking apart what you read and figuring out what works about it. Like uh, last year we took an agency reading week, which I ended up being in the middle of a kind of ridiculous film deal that took over my entire reading week. So it was not actually a reading week, but that's okay. We're going to try again this year and I'm going to get it. But um, what we, what I did like on at night, since I wasn't doing it during the day was read a bunch of books that were working in a really big way to try to figure out what and how and why. And I think that that's something that serves authors really well. Like you're not going to take everything you learn from it, but being able to sort of see, you know, the the down to a craft level, like, oh, this author always ends chapters like this. Oh, this author, what this author does with sentence structure when they're trying to ratchet up tension is really interesting. Like that kind of deep, focused, attentive reading, I think is invaluable for leveling up in terms of craft. And then also in terms of, marketing thinking about like why a given book worked and what about it that's attractive to people and like sometimes sometimes you will read things and be like i have no idea and sometimes frankly like the team is like i have no idea that's okay um but where you can extrapolate i think that's incredibly valuable it freaks me out a little bit when that happens when i'll read a book that's a number one bestseller that i, I don't get it but yeah. then, then i feel it must be me <laughs> the whole world can't be wrong it's, it's this guy well, but sometimes things take on, you know, like there's a weird gravity to like success begets success, right? Where once everybody's reading it, then everybody's reading it. And you're like, why, why what are we, what are we all doing? But, you know, such is life. Let's talk just a little bit about diversity in publishing, because this is an obsession of mine. And so I want to see more diverse books. And I know you yeah. do as well. So what have you seen publishers doing to increase the diverse offerings? And what are, are you and the, the Root Literary Agency doing to increase diverse offerings? Um, I mean, I think that you can't, you can't improve what you're not tracking, what you're not paying attention to. So we're certainly paying attention to, you know, how our lists look, what kinds of um, backgrounds our authors are coming from, what kind of representation they have. And then I think also within the industry overall, there is a greater awareness that like for a long time, the sort of prototypical publishing person, you know, went to one of five schools and looks a certain way. And I think there, if you look at the ranks of young up and coming editors, you can really see that that's shifting. I think we need that to happen across the whole business though, because it's not enough to have editors and agents talking about it. We also need diverse sales forces, we need diverse marketing teams, we need like we need all it, it has to the industry needs to look like our readership and our customer base. And we're not there yet. But people do seem to be paying attention. I mean, I think retention then becomes a big issue um, for those young people that they're supported, and that they feel like there's a path forward. Um, and that they feel like there are jobs waiting for them that hold appeal. Um, you know, it's the industry, at least in-house, is largely still based in New York. And there is a lot of stuff like for us when we were hiring, you know, we got a lot of uh, submissions from people who were not located in L.A. And I, 
And they were like, I could read slush from home. And I was like, well, you could, but here's the thing. You couldn't possibly know the weird things that I don't think to say that I want that Melanie, who's here in our office, picks up because she's right here. And she's like, hey, you remember when we were talking about that thing? Like, well, there's something in the slush that's kind of like that. But more to the point, like for that specific job, I need someone who can physically like put things in the mail. <laughs> you know, I like I need like there's some of it that just can't be outsourced because we are still a paper industry. There's got to be a way to open up the geographical restrictions somewhat. Um, but I haven't cracked it yet. And publishers don't seem to have either. And some of that is like, I am limited by my own experience. My experience was coming up in very, like at your desk in the office kind of places. And so I, I'm limited by what I know. And I acknowledge that. So like some other agency might totally get how to do that and train people up who are remote, but we're not there yet. Um, but all of that is like part of this conversation about attracting and keeping people who are not all you know, from those same four schools in the Northeast who are all like well-meaning white ladies because well-meaning- could afford to work an unpaid internship for two or three years in Manhattan right. and right. then move on. Right, and I mean, I've been a, in, a, in a position to hire um, or to be involved in the hiring for a long time. Every time I got promoted coming up, I had to replace myself. And I always wanted, my priorities were always finding candidates who had like worked in a library, worked in a bookstore, you know, like you- <laughs> Being able to do, I did internships, but in college in Arkansas, <laughs> you know, like not, not, I could not afford to move to New York and not be paid for, you know, some quantity of time. Um, publishers are paying interns now, which is great. We don't do unpaid internships. Um, like I believe in paying people for their work. It's a thing. Um, so, you know, I think there are strides being made, but we have so much further to go. And it's it's really hard, you know, like when we go to send out um, a manuscript by an author of color and you look around and you're like, there are no people from the same background in acquiring positions. Cool. And you know, there are plenty, like not to say that you would only send a book to someone who shared that exact background. Like that's not the point of diversifying. Sure. Somewhere there'd be a, a, an editor of color screaming, why won't someone send me a book about a white girl and her horse? I mean, yeah. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not that we would only send, um, but just it, it's a, it paints a really stark picture of how far we have to go to be a truly inclusive industry. Um, you know, so I mean, it's things like the AAR, of which we are proud members, the Association of Authors Representatives has um, paid internships with agencies um, that are done in the summers in New York. I would love to expand that to LA at some point. We We'll get there. Um, so like that's something that we've donated toward um, toward paying those interns so that it's more feasible for people to take that job um, and diversify the agency pipeline. It's something we're paying attention to both, you know, on a staffing level and then also with our our clients. And uh, another question I'm, I'm big on, on, on asking as many professionals as I can, uh, now that we're in the age of the indie revolution and, and, and we're there, uh, because yeah. anybody can publish a book from anywhere. I always start my uh, class on self-publishing with, if we wanted to, by the end of this three-hour class, we could have a book up and available to the entire world by the end of the, of the class. And obviously, we would never do that. What a terrible idea. Um, but in that age... And knowing that, looking 10, 15 years, I keep reading estimates that anywhere from 75 to 80% of retailers are, are going to be going away and we're moving more and more towards an online model. Although, of course, when it comes to future projections, it, nothing's more fun than going back and reading past future projections to see how close they were to that mark. 
But knowing that that is an issue, are you working with indie authors and what are the arguments for why someone might want to wait two years to have their um, ready to market book out on shelves by going the traditional route? So, I mean, I, I represent romance authors too. So they're like, they're, they're so far out ahead of everybody else. Um, because, you know, their market was really sort of the, the canary in the coal mine for the entire indie revolution. Um, and there are whole subcategories of romance that are, that publishing has sort of like seeded the field of play where like the market for that is indisputably indie published authors. Um, I, I have, I work with a lot of authors who are hybrid where they have one strand of their work that makes sense for that market and that's where they do it and then they have another strand that they publish with a traditional publisher so there's no it's not it's not a value judgment it's not um there's no like right or wrong answer to it it's really about how much of the lift the author wants to do because you're not just the author you're also the publisher and if you're not interested in being a publisher <laughs> like there that that's like that's really what you're undertaking um then, then you, you know, indie is not going to serve you well. Um, I get emails, you know, we get submissions all the time from people who are like, I published this and I sold 500 copies and now I need someone to take it to the next level. And that's just not what we do. Um, and that is way more common than people want to think. Like the trade-off of speed is that then you've arrived, but you're by yourself again, you know? So it's really about what you want, what your what your success path looks like, and what the most likely road to get there is. So if what you are writing is something for which there is a natural constituency within e-publishing and self-publishing, then you should do that. <laughs> like, no question. I would never tell someone, you know, there are certain, again, certain kinds of romance, certain kinds of sci-fi, certain kinds of like, they're just different categories where like the reader base that you want, that is where they live. If you are someone who wants to have your book, like to know that your book is probably going to be in every library, the likelier road for you runs through traditional publishing simply because librarians are still going to rely a lot on that the traditional path. It's not to say that there are not self-published books in libraries. There are, but again, it's going to be on you, the author, to go out and, you know, beat the bushes and make those connections and get those books stocked. So it's really just about sort of what you, what your outcome looks like and how you want to achieve it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really, it's just the right, the right place for each book to live. And some things do go back and forth between them. You know, I have people who've self-published their backlist after we've gotten rights reverted, um, like a book went out of print and then they've put it back up. Um, I've had people who've gone the other way where we had a self-published book and then, you know, ended up either, most likely, most of the time now, early days, you could kind of take something and move it into traditional, but mostly now that's, okay, we're going to do another book that is, builds on the audience you have, but that also dovetails with what traditional publishing is really good at. Um, so it's really just about what you want out of it and which path is most likely. You have to take, you know, you can't expect to be the outlier <laughs> in any circumstance. So, you know, what does the median experience look like and which of those roads is most likely to land me in that ballpark? That makes 100% of sense. Um, I've got so many questions for you, but we're going to call it with one more. Uh, last question I have for you is because there are uh, no doubt 15 years ago, a lot of other folks that were in that same mail room or other mail rooms, uh, other folks that you passed on your way up, but you're still here. You survived 2008. Now you're running your own agency. You are a superstar literary agent. So are there 
what um what motivates you and what are things you know that you've done when you zigged when you could have zagged that have set you up for success oh man um i think like there is like a scrappy factor um that for sure comes into play um it's hard to sort of point to any one turning point I mean, I can't, I can, I'm moving out here actually really blew my business up. I think because I was not as focused on like what everybody else was up to as much as I was like, just kind of doing my own thing. Um, and it reinforced that my instincts and my way of doing things work for me and they're not the right thing for everybody, but they work for me and that it's okay to just be a little more self-directed about, what to pursue. And I mean, that's, that's always been the case. Like when dystopia was the hot thing in YA, I like did not do it. I just sold high fantasy instead. Um, so like trends have never been sort of my like North star. Um, but yeah, I mean, moving out here was really good for me personally. Um, and professionally and my career sort of took off right around the time I've been out here eight years. Um, and that was definitely an inflection point for me. I mean, I benefited for sure from the boom in romance. Um, I I came up at the point when YA was booming, which led to me getting um, a middle grade client list that has proven to be um, just like a like just a marathon. Like there, these guys just my clients have just like put out book after book after book and built really beautiful businesses. Um, so every block of it sort of builds on the other, and that's why I always advise younger agents to just keep a really open mind about what it is that they do and rep and to, to not be afraid to diversify the kinds of books that they represent um, because you never know what's going to give you the thing that takes off and suddenly you're well positioned to be at the head of a new booming industry, you know? So you, maybe you do a couple nonfiction projects and you're like, yeah, that's not for me. Um, like when I experimented with that and learned that like, I don't really like doing projects where there's a personality and a writer, like that stresses me out. I want the person who's making the book to be the person who's making the book. Um, a lot of people make a lot of money doing <laughs> books by very famous people and matching them with the perfect writer. That's a skill set. It's just not mine. Um, but if I had, hadn't tried that, I wouldn't know that. And I wouldn't have the confidence of my convictions that I could do what it is I'm good at and make a living at it. Um, so yeah, I think it was a, will a combination of a willingness to try a bunch of things. I also think um, I am really good at working with people who have a lot of different interests. The number of clients on my list where like I signed them for X and then they became really successful doing Y <laughs> is significant. Um, so I tend to go for people versus projects. And I think that has served me very well. Um, that an interesting writer I connect with is going to be an interesting writer I connect with across a lot of categories. And that's going to give us flexibility and opportunity. And we're going to be able to be nimble and we're going to be able to try new things. And we're going to be able to, you know, burnout is really real for authors too. And if you start to get burned out in one category, but you can find joy writing in another, then that's a way to keep people um, you know, in the conversation. So yeah, I mean, those are kind of just some loose ideas. Would that answer the question? 
It absolutely answers the question. Holly, what a wonderful conversation we've had today. I am thrilled to, to have this as a part of the uh, Middle Grade Ninja Show. This is an episode I know I'm going to come back and re-listen to and re-listen to. Uh, and I'd probably say to myself, Rob, why didn't you ask her this? Uh, so maybe we'll have to do it again when I've uh, come up with enough questions that we miss. Thank you so much uh, for making the time and for being here today. Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online? Uh, so I am on Twitter at hroot. We are our website is rootliterary.com, and we are on Instagram at rootliterary. And I, of course, am at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, if you like the show, make sure you like, subscribe, leave a review, uh, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, sign up for MoCon coming up here May 3rd through May 5th. If you'd like to sign up for my fiction workshop, we are going to be running at capacity here by about the next week. So there's a couple of spots left. If you'd like to sign up, head to middlegradeninja.com and sign up. Uh, Holly, I have been asking our guests to sign off. Uh, our sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya and what have you.